0: Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 83. If you enjoy this episode or others like it, please consider being one of my patrons over on patreon.com. When you sign up to be a patron, what you're doing is you're supporting the work that I'm doing on this podcast and elsewhere on betterbiblereading.com. But when you do become a patron, you gain access to exclusive content as well as a first-hand look at courses that I have in development, things I'm going to be releasing in the future. So you're really coming alongside me in the work that I'm doing here on BetterBibleReading.com and most specifically the podcast. So please consider doing that. Head on over to Patreon.com to be a patron for Better Bible Reading. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Better Bible Reading. Okay, today we're continuing our look at the gospel according to the Old Testament. And if you are a critical thinker, somebody that's really been paying attention to every last word that I've been saying, you may have caught somewhat of a mistake. So I do want to begin this by offering an apology because I don't know where my head was at, obviously not here, but on the last episode when we covered the idea of a greater king, I made mention of the fact that... We already covered the greater prophet and the greater priest. Well, the problem is we haven't done the episode about a greater priest. That's what today is. So please uh, accept my apologies because i misspoke in that regard. So today, episode number 83, we are covering the idea of a greater priest. If you've been following along with this whole series of the gospel according to the Old Testament, you will know that one of the ways that we've been really investigating the subject matter of the gospel in the Old Testament is not necessarily by looking at every single passage, but we're really doing this in a more of a thematic uh, process. We're looking at the themes of the Old Testament, and three themes that really stick out are the idea of the offices in the Old Testament. Now, you might think that these offices are kind of unrelated to the big picture. They're almost like kind of temporary uh, installments for the life of God's people in the Old Testament. But as it turns out, each one of these three offices actually see a grand fulfillment in Jesus, which of course means a grand fulfillment in the gospel. We see that in Jesus' ministry as prophet, priest, and king. And what we're doing is we're analyzing all three of those to see just how it is, that Jesus took those things that were mentioned in the Old Testament that served as types, as shadows, and seeing how he brings them to an ultimate fulfillment in his own life, in the content of the gospel. So we've seen that as Jesus is the greater Moses in the ministry of prophet. We saw it last time as Jesus is a greater king, a fulfillment of the ministry of David. And now we look today as Jesus, the greater priest. And this one is really unique because we don't necessarily see a kind of one-to-one correspondence of fulfillment, at least in one particular person in the Old Testament. So you could look to Moses and see a direct correspondence between him and Jesus. You could do the same thing with David. But with the office of priest, it's a very unique one because Jesus kind of takes the idea of priest and brings it to a really significant fulfillment that doesn't have a one-to-one relationship between a person. And this is really uh, a unique take on the gospel as well because a lot of times we don't think about Jesus as a priest, although that is a very significant role that he plays in the gospel. So let's take a look at how that actually works here in this study today. I want to start out by reading to you Hebrews 9 11 through 15 because that's really a great place for us to begin our discussion. Here's what it says in God's Word Hebrews 9 11 through 15. If you're not driving or doing something that you would typically be doing while listening to a podcast, uh, please feel free to grab your Bible and follow along with me. If you're doing something that that would make grabbing a Bible very unsafe, then don't do that, but keep listening intently. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is one of those awkward places where we insert ourselves right in the middle of a grand argument being made by the author of Hebrews. Hebrews is such an important book in the New Testament because it really serves as a commentary of the Old Testament. Especially on those books that we tend to shy away from having to do with sacrifices. I mean, how many of you have tried to read your Bible? You make it all the way through Genesis. You make it about three-quarters of the way through Exodus. And then after Israel crosses uh, the Red Sea, and you start having stipulations that go beyond the introductory stipulations, the Ten Commandments, you start to see all these other expansions of it and so on and so forth and then we start getting into the temple and the priests and all that we've pretty much lost our way and a lot of people kind of give up um, once they make it to that point exodus 20 21 22 you kind of fall off your bible reading wagon and never make your way back that tends to happen a lot well hebrews is a really good book not to replace it but to give you a good commentary of reminding you what the significance of all these things are. So it actually encourages you to go back and read instead of encourages you not to. Well, when we think about this passage, what is true is that the birth of Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is only significant in as much as it anticipates his work. But this is something that I've really harped on a lot in the study so far is that the gospel is not just the good news that Jesus was born or the good news of him dying on the cross. It's the full examination, the full subject matter of his earthly ministry and even his continuing ministry now as ascending to the right hand of God. But his birth is only significant in as much as it is anticipating his work, Now when we read this passage in Hebrews 9 we're made aware of the fact that God's people are forever released from the bondage of sin. And I want to really capitalize on that word forever because you see that in chapter 9 no less than three times. Now you don't see the word forever, but you do see a different word. At least in the ESV you see the word eternal. Notice that This passage, when it's talking about Jesus' work and what he's done, it says that he has secured, in verse 12, an eternal redemption. Then you move on to verse 14. This he has done through the eternal spirit. And then finally, what he has given us in this, verse 15, is the promised eternal inheritance. So that idea of eternal, of everlasting, of foreverness to use an awkward compound phrase there, is Jesus' work. His work is not temporary. It's not just merely propositional. It's eternal. He is given an eternal redemption for God's people. Now, let me read this uh, in light of another passage of Scripture in the book of Psalms to think about what this actually means at the end of the day. Psalm 49, maybe this isn't a psalm that really sticks out to you, like a Psalm 23 or a Psalm 110 or a Psalm 119. But in Psalm 49, we're told this. This is really uh, an important conversation piece to the idea of Jesus' sacrifice. It says this, verse number 7, Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Now, Psalm 49 tells us very plainly that there's no such thing as redemption from man to man. You need something much greater, you need something much more than just a man attempting to ransom another. Now, if you've followed along in our conversation, you'll know that what this really gets us to is capitalizing on the fact that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He is not merely a man in his earthly ministry and then became God later, as Mormons like to say, or as even some varieties of the prosperity gospel teachers will say, as a false gospel altogether. But instead, it capitalizes on the fact that the work of redemption is a work that God has to do. Now, interestingly enough, if we keep reading in Psalm 49, I'm I'm sorry for those of you watching as I was flipping all over the page there, but I, I, I forgot to read a verse that's so important here. In Psalm 49, after we're told that in 7 through 10, that no man can ransom another, and there's no such thing as something that can free people from death. Verse 10, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. We're told later on, verse 15, now this is so fascinating, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. In other words, Psalm 49 says, only God can ransom people from death, and that's precisely what God does. And then you get to Hebrews 9, and you see that this sacrifice which Jesus makes is one that secures a re- eternal redemption, and eternal inheritance, and it's one that is done through the eternal spirit. So very clearly what we have in Hebrews 9 is the fact that Jesus is divine. Again, this is no surprise. This is something we see throughout the other aspects of Jesus' ministry as a prophet and as a king. All human kings have died. We need a king that can't die. We need one who's eternal. Jesus is that man. And all prophets die and can't bring people to the fullness of the prophetic ministry because they are also sinners. So we need a prophet who speaks forever. And Jesus is the eternal word of God. In the beginning was the word, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is the word of God. So again, we see all these human elements in the Old Testament fulfilled in jesus who is not only man to have that one-to-one correlation of fulfillment but who is god who is divine so that he has an eternal once for all fulfillment of the ministry of prophet of king and today of priest the old testament was under a covenant as we read here that this death that jesus has has satisfied those who lived under the first covenant that not only means those in the old testament but it also means those of us today outside of christ we are in the stipulations of the old covenant the wages of sin is death (Romans 6 23 and jesus comes in and offers his life as a ransom for that death which is due to us and secures for us eternal life eternal redemption eternal inheritance the second half of Romans 6:23 for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord so he steps in and does this for us Ephesians 2 1 is another place that speaks to the fact that we and our sins are dead and God has made us alive in Christ again this is you know very basic but I hope that what you're starting to see is that this, kind of typical salvation language of being dead in sin alive in Christ and so on and so forth is the language that speaks to one who is a priest. That's what Ephes- that's what Hebrews 9 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest. Now that is just really fascinating imagery here. Because when you look at the high priest in the Old Testament What is true of the high priest just as what was true of the king and the prophet is that there came a day when they died. And when they died, you had to get another king, another prophet, another priest. Look at the kind of storyline of Israel in the Old Covenant. You have Moses who was established as God's prophet, as God's mouthpiece. And then you have, in the tribe of the Levites, you have Aaron and his sons who serve as the priests. They offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. They have a very unique position in the presence of God, the kind of position and the kind of presence of God that was not experienced by the rest of Israel. But even in the immediate life of Aaron, who sinned, and Aaron's sons, who sinned, you saw that theirs was still priests who, to borrow language from many people who like to use this terminology, priests with dirty clothes. These priests were still sinners. It's not only that they came to offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people, but they also had to offer sacrifices on their behalf. And case in point that they were evil, case in point that they were still sinners, was the fact that they died just like every other sinner. So you have this kind of series, this repetition of a priest who comes to serve God's people and enter into a relationship with the Lord in terms of entering into the temple and offering sacrifices. But the fact that they died means that they were also sinners, so you had to get another priest. And this rinse and repeat cycle continued to happen never mind the fact that they had to go through all these cleansing and purification rituals before they could even enter into the temple. And then you get to Jesus, and what is so fascinating is that he is positioned totally different from the high priests of the Old Covenant. First and foremost, it's that he doesn't offer sacrifices on behalf of his sins. You know why? Because he was sinless. He didn't have sins that he had to... Have atoned. He offers sacrifices on behalf of God's people, not on behalf of himself. But now, listen to this. What's also fascinating about what this actually is in terms of Jesus as a high priest is that he doesn't come with bulls and goats and sheep and so on and so forth. He actually comes and offers himself. Now, that's something totally different from all of the high priests in the Old Testament. They didn't offer it themselves, they didn't die on behalf of the people. You want to know why? Because Psalm 49 no man can ransom himself for another man. No one can offer his life in exchange for somebody else's life. That's something only God can do. Only God can free people from death itself. So we have to conclude. That what Jesus is doing and offering Himself, is this kind of sacrifice, that doesn't just put people in a good state with God, but it's the kind of sacrifice that secures something once and for all, for people. And that's precisely the language that's used in Hebrews nine. Once for all, corresponds to eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. This is what Jesus grants and secures for his people, in the sacrifice of himself. And since he sacrifices himself, we have to also conclude that this is a divine sacrifice, not merely a man dying, but actually a divine sacrifice on behalf of God's people. The value of that death is what secures an eternal life for the people that it is offered on behalf of. Now this is really interesting as well because what was true in the Old Testament was the whole structure of the tabernacle and then later on in the life of Solomon when God's temple is actually built as a permanent structure that you have these places and each place corresponds to who can be around. So you have the area outside of the temple for the common man, Then you have entering into the initial portion of the temple, which was only for the priests. Only the priests could go into that area. And then you have the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was only for the high priest, a singular person, the high priest to enter in. And that high priest entered in and offered sacrifices on behalf of God's people. This he did on the Day of Atonement, which is another uh, another phrase for that, is that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So, what do we have in this imagery? We have the imagery that true fellowship and communion in the presence of God, with God, is a place that only the high priest could enjoy. That realm of fellowship with God was something only a cleansed and holy high priest could enjoy. Now, the high priests in the Old Testament weren't sinless. It's not as though they stood there in their own merit and were considered holy enough and good enough to be in the presence of God. Again, as I mentioned, there is a whole series of sacrifices and cleansing rites that they have to go through before they could even be in that presence. Which speaks to the fact that they were sinners, not saints. But as they stood there, they stood there on behalf of God's people. Now, fast forward to the life of Jesus, and what do we begin to see? We begin to see that in the New Testament, after Jesus' death, we have the fact that we are regarded as priests. We serve in the presence of God. Some of the strongest language that you see in the New Testament is in the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, where we are told that we will dwell in the presence of God forever. There will be no need for a temple. There will be no need for sacrifices. We will actually be in the presence of God without a mediator, at least in terms of our sin. So that's a very fascinating way to start thinking of this temple language, this high priest language. What else do we see about Jesus' life? Well, think of his death on the cross. What are we told in the Gospel of Matthew? We're told that the veil in the temple was torn, was rent asunder, to use the old King James Version language. Now that veil that was torn after the death of Christ was the actual veil used to separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. So you have this beautiful imagery that when Jesus' death was accomplished, it's as if to say that no other temporal sacrifices were needed any longer. Because we have an eternal, sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice that grants that fellowship with God to all who have that sacrifice applied to them. Jesus' sacrifice was one that secured the Holy of Holies in terms of our position to God. It guaranteed that for us. As long as that sacrifice is applied to us on our behalf, we now have full access to the throne of God. We don't have to stop outside the gates We don't have to stop just inside the temple, but we can actually enter into, as it were, the Holy of Holies to dwell in the presence of God. Now, as if that weren't enough, you start thinking about the other language that's employed in the New Testament about those of us who are in Christ. We're told that the Holy Spirit actually comes and dwells in us. God gives us the Holy Spirit And in like manner, we are told of ourselves that we are the temple of God for him to dwell in. Let me read you a passage of scripture that speaks to this. The book of Ephesians tells us, let me pick it up here, verse 18 of chapter 2. We're told this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, that access language is temple language. Think of it in those terms. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, no longer outside the temple. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, listen to this. Being joined, I'm sorry, in whom the whole structure... Again, temple language, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, that is just such grand language used by Paul to emphasize the fact that our religion as Christians is not tied to a physical place. We don't have to go to a physical place to find God's presence wherein otherwise we would be outside of His presence. We are told that we who are in Christ are the temple of God. We are being built as a dwelling place for God. Not just us individually, but corporately the whole body of Christ is the dwelling place of God. We are a temple. We are a tabernacle. And as the Spirit Resides in us. We are in close, intimate fellowship with God, true communion with God, in a way that far surpasses the kind of communion that only the high priest could have in the Old Testament and nobody else. But it's not based on our own merit. It's not based on our own works. It's because Jesus himself has offered a sacrifice that grants eternal redemption to us. This he has done through the eternal Spirit. This he has gained for us and secured an eternal inheritance. And what is that eternal inheritance? Well, it's not gold and silver. It is this phrase, this heritage I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We are part of the household of God, the family of God. And this Jesus has done for us in his sacrifice. He is different from all the other high priests that we have as types and shadows in the Old Testament. He is the high priest that offers himself without blemish to God for our sins. And because he is divine, because the value of his sacrifice and the purity of it is without match, it is that sacrifice that is everlasting to everlasting. It always stands as a once-for-all completed work of, where we don't have to go anywhere else. We don't have to find any other kind of sacrifice. He is altogether sufficient for us. And lastly, what's fascinating about this whole thing, this whole thing in Jesus' sacrifice, this whole thing in what he has done for us, is the imagery that it's not only that he died, it's not only that he was raised from the dead. As crucial as those are, to his ministry of death on our behalf and his being raised to new life but we ask the question well where is he now and what is he doing now well we're told in the bible that he has ascended to the right hand of god the father he has ascended to the right hand of god the father and awaits the final consummation his return his second coming but he is not up there twiddling his thumbs But if you go on to read the book of Hebrews, you learn that he stands in our place, on our behalf, in the immediate presence of God in the heavenly temple as a high priest. He stands as a high priest interceding on our behalf. He is the eternal stand-in, the eternal mediator on our behalf. As long as his sacrifice remains... He remains our high priest. And as long as he remains our high priest, we have direct access to God. He has gone, as it were, to the Holy of Holies, not this temporal Holy of Holies, which we saw on earth in the Old Testament, but the heavenly Holy of Holies, the true temple that all of these things on earth are types and shadows of. And he has gone there, with the perfect sacrifice that he has accomplished. As long as he remains there, he is our high priest forever. That is such a beautiful picture. Here's what it says. Let me just read that first part of Hebrews 9, 11 through 15 again, because you may have missed that the first time I read it. When he appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent. So we're being told here what he has done Is he has appeared, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You have the Son of God ascending to the Father at his right hand. So when Christ appeared there as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So how is heaven described here? As the greater tent. The one that all of these things on earth correspond to. The blueprint, the archetype, tent. He entered once for all into the holy places where he is now. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Now Again, that's the point. He's a high priest now. He has an earthly ministry as prophet He rules and reigns now with all authority as king of kings and lord of lords, but he also is at the right hand of God the Father now as our eternal high priest. As long as he's there, his sacrifice remains. As long as he's there, our right standing with God remains. And since no death can hold him down, since he is alive forevermore, that means his ministry as high priest is forever and ever. He has secured for us, as the author of Hebrews says, an eternal redemption. And that is good news for us. That is a beautiful resolution to the question in the Old Testament, just as the question is asked of all the other earthly ministries. Who's going to be the next high priest? Who's going to be the next high priest? And then a high priest comes and they die. And they are sinners. They have to offer sacrifices on their behalf as well but we get to Jesus and it is fully satisfied forever and ever because he is an eternal high priest who offers an eternal sacrifice on our behalf. Well, friends, that wraps things up for this episode. And that's our final look at the three offices of Jesus and how they find fulfillment in their initial foretelling in the Old Testament and his completed work in the New Testament. In our last series of the Gospel according to the Old Testament, we're going to be looking at the fact that all of these things bring us to a grand fulfillment. We're going back to the garden in some places, but in other places we're going to all of the full intentions of what the garden was supposed to lead us to. And that is not a world of sin and misery, but it is in fact a heightened sense of fellowship with God, forever and ever that's going to be our subject matter next time on teaching thursdays but until then friends thank you so much for listening thank you for your support i hope you've enjoyed this episode i hope it's been helpful to you please subscribe to the show on itunes or on youtube whatever your preference is your subscription helps boost this show up in its searchability more and more people will be able to find it and that's one of the greatest gestures that you can make in helping me get the word out to other people But if you're listening to this, that means that you found me. So thank you so much for your listening and watching support. And I look forward to another episode with you real soon. Until then, head on over to BetterBibleReading.com for more and more resources. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day.